Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 96. In this episode, I'm going to be looking at the year 2000 as a whole. I thought much like I did those seri that series a while ago where I was like doing a top 15 albums from individual years of, um, of the last decade, I thought it'd be fun to do something again in that general style where... Um, yeah, I just take a year as a whole and kind of extrapolate trends and so on out of it by looking at everything that came out. I'm not going to do any top 15 or ranking like that because, honestly, that's a bit exhausting as a format. Instead, I'm gonna, this is going to be a collection of, like, much shorter reviews. For me, 2000 is quite an interesting year to revisit because the year I started listening to music, um, but particularly got into rock and metal that year. And as those of you who lived through it or were well aware of what was released at the time... Not the best start in music going, so I'll start this off actually by looking at kind of what was in the mainstream before we delve into the kind of subgenres of black and death metal, etc. So to set the scene, with the year 2000, um, new metal was at its height commercially, if not creatively. Two albums I think kind of really typified like where it was at this point in time. Firstly, Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory, which is an album like... I say seemingly everyone of my generation owned um, and was huge rotation on like music channels. I've, I've heard tracks like In the End or Crawling thousands upon thousands of times. And that isn't actually the most successful album from this year. The most successful one was Limp Bizkit's Chocolate Starfish, another album that was just wildly successful. I think... The stamp, it sold like a million copies in its opening week. Um, like, uh, Rolling, I remember, remember being like number one on top of the pops in the UK. It's ridiculous. Like, so kind of rock and metal, like, I mean, both those bands, like, arguably kind of metal, had made this massive, like, commercial comeback. Like, they were so much more successful than, say, Corn or Slipknot had been five years earlier when they both those bands were starting out. Um, but it wasn't exactly good. And this is this is kind of the the dichotomy of like a year like two thousand where like there was now massive um attention back on the genres we loved after kind of a couple of years fairly underground, like sort of the middle nineties, like weren't getting a huge amount of commercial play like after sort of people have started losing interest in grunge and new metal have very much brought that interest back but it came with a very sort of negative sense and yeah I, I couldn't bring myself in the research to this to revisit those um those two albums like both ones I was fairly fond of when they came out again I was I was pretty young but yeah I don't think they're two that have have aged hugely well sort of more in that vein, the successful in lesser extent. We had Papa Roach's Infest, which another one that absolutely huge, but again, I don't think will hold up very well now. Disturbed the Sickness, um, which which is great because actually an album managed to come out this year with a worse breakdown than the Linkin Park Shut Up one. The the breakdown in the middle of Down with the Sickness is is baffling that song is so popular um but there were there were a few moments um like of the new metal scene at this point that i guess maybe had a little bit more merit you had things like uh deftones white pony which deftones seemed to be such a like hot issue i'm not gonna i'm not gonna wade in on that one and say my opinion one way or another for some reason that band is still causing fights even now um then you had stuff like say afi put out the art of drowning which i think was 
a point where that band started getting quite big and that would somewhat set the scene for what would happen with bands like My Chemical Romance a couple of years later. Um, one I did spend a bit of time on because I think it was one of the more interesting new metal titles of the time. I'm not sure I liked it, but it definitely had more merit than some of these others, was uh, Mudvayne's LD50. Um, like Mudvayne struck me as a bit of a weird one comparing to a lot of those albums that were around at the time, um, just because they had a really obvious virtuo virtuoso musician in the form of Ryan Martini. Like, his bass work on this album is really impressive. Like, you all know the song Dig. That is actually, like, an Im like as, as funny as, like, the, the memes at the moment are about it. Like, that is a really difficult track to play. And a lot of their music was propped up on that kind of thing. At its better moments, it has some, like, some serious, like, tool vibes. Particularly a track like Prod has got some of that kind of, yeah, quite complex weirdness going on problem with the album is it does have all those trappings of new metal it's, it's the same issue i have with say the first uh slipknot album where it's like the bits where it's really death metal i love it but then when it goes into the really rappy bits i can't deal with it anymore and those like semi-cleans the guy's doing on like parts of this album are um yeah, they're just really off-putting to me. But I can see why people, like, like this band. Um, and I sort of, like, listening to this now, I can see why there's that bit of a, a critical reappraisal for new metal, because you can definitely hear some hints of, like, where Gent went with this kind of sound. Like, once guitar technology got to a point where you could can make an even more impressive, like, <laughs> low noise. Um, yeah, a lot of these kind of more technical new metal bands certainly must have had a bit of an influence there as i say i'm still not sure i really enjoyed it but i was i was surprised by the complexity of it and also like how bloody long it is it's like a 70 minute long album some very 2000 things going on there as well with lots of uh like terence mckenna quotes throughout it which i don't know feels like something that was very popular at the time talking of 70 minute long albums apparently the limp biscuit one is as well which which blew my mind like I, I don't know what that band would be doing with 70 minutes of music one of the many reasons i couldn't face actually revisiting that to see if it had some merit to it pop punk was also absolutely huge at this time but um didn't seem like a lot of like the quotes classic albums like came out in 2000 i think those were almost a bit before like green day put out warning and i think again that's kind of seen as a bit of a drop off for them first album I ever bought um, was <laughs> was The Offspring's Conspiracy of One, which, oh my god, I went back to. Even Nostalgia can't save that band. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, don't know what 10-year-old me was thinking, but he was definitely wrong. I apologise, that's enough time spent dragging up crap music from Metal's collective past. Um, let's get into some, some genres that are more typical for us. I think an interesting one to start on is looking at sort of where black metal was in the year 2000. So black metal probably had its, like, kind of commercial peak in, like, 94, 95? That feels like the, roughly the height of, like, all the, um all the sort of nonsense going down in Norway and it getting a bit of um, a bit of a claim and all that. Which means by the time we get to um, year 2000, we're in a bit of a weird place where a lot of the old guard have either split up or gone off doing slightly strange things or, or just in periods where people aren't paying quite as much attention. Like, um, uh, so Dark Friend are going to put out like Plague Wielder the year after this, which is... I know, pretty one of their arms people like most lukewarm on 
um you know emperor about to wind it all down i think um isn't yeah prometheus is the year after this so like a lot of bands are taking a slightly strange approach one of the most successful um sort of early ones that are still here but in a weird place is mayhem with grand declaration of war which is easily their most despised album because they brought in a load of strange like electronic influences it's very progressive although like every time i've tried that that album has has totally lost me in fact what's like kind of quite noticeable about this time period is there wasn't a lot of the classic bands putting out albums but a lot of bands who would lead like you know the last 10 years kind of charge on popular black metal were sort of finding their feet so um behemoth put out Thelma six which is it's a disappointing one for me because it follows on from satanica which is still my favorite behemoth album as controversial choice as that is and Thelma six for me just felt a little bit bloated like it's got some really good moments like christians the lions but it hardly holds up as one of their strongest i think it's maybe a good one for peppering like later sets with a few tracks from but definitely not their best um immortal put out damned in black which seemed to be like immortal finding their later period sound so they just put out um at the heart of winter the year before so like damned in black comes out very quickly afterwards sons of northern darkness would only be two years later as well and i feel this is the one they've transitioned to something else that we they would do for the next three albums those the the, the kind of final abath three are kind of in a similar vein and it's got some great moments like it's it's an intense like fairly furious record like particularly the the title track at the end the seven minute damned in black is really excellent but it's somewhat let down by the production it just I know it's a, it's a little tinny sounding. I I'm not in love with with how it sounds, but the the performances are all amazing. Um, and yeah, it is a worthy follow up, particularly considering how quickly they put it there. And it's one of the few examples of the like a Norwegian band who hadn't gone like totally off the rails into into completely different territories. So on the subject of Norwegian bands, um, an album I think stands out as an absolute highlight from this year but it's like interestingly kind of in a weird place he's um enslaved with their fifth album martyrdom beyond the within so at this point like um trim torson has long left the band um they had a blood helm with a new lineup with so dirge rep replacing trim on drums and roy kronheim on second guitar and backing vocals and they'd done one album that I'd say sort of sits more in uh, the older style, but Mardalum seems more like it seems more original than what they'd been doing for a while. It seems like they really try something a bit different with this one. And I would go on a limb and say it's easily the heaviest enslaved album I can think of. Like there is a certain like fury to the drumming and the vocals like that opening 10 minute track goes into like almost like death metal territory in places like uh Grutal is trying both um like it kind of he's got his classic like uh gargling kind of black metal scream but there's also like a much more use of like a lower sort of guttural vocal as well which um which adds a lot 
it's still highly progressive. Like, it, whichever enslaved album you dip into, they are always incredibly, um, incredibly weird and complex. Even in like shorter tracks, they'll throw a lot of um, a lot of ideas at them. But yeah, the main takeaway I had going back to this recently was just it's extremely brutal. Like. It moves back and forth. There's still like there's moments of clean vocals, and I'm not sure who's providing the cleans in this, but they would somewhat hint of what's going to start happening around albums like Issa with um with those sort of big clean choruses coming in. But there's a few and far between, or or just done for much less time. Like again, that opener has has like a clean line in it, which knowing it later enslaved so much better. I was really like expecting that line to build into a, a big clean section but no it's just back to the sort of the blasting and the chaos it's interesting with this lineup because it sits between the two like the this guitarist and drummer stuck with them for for one more album um and like, the the incredible monumentation and then we get into like the later period in slaves i guess like actually in recent years uh, we could say E onwards has definitely hit a kind of new evolution for the band, but between particularly Issa and In Times, they kind of got into a groove and they had a very recognisable sound for a while. E, they went far more down like a kind of prog rock direction, so I think that maybe is a, a sort of a new time. But yeah, this one, this one just feels feels very unique for Enslaver. Like if it wasn't for Grutal's vocals, I don't think I'd immediately recognize it as them like it's lost there's still bits of the viking metal trappings of the the early albums but i think to a large extent those have been shed for some kind of modern influences and some more kind of yeah just odd song structure ideas here like they they just seem to be trying a lot of very strange things like lots of the kind of more melodic moments are just thrown in really briefly and then I'll move to back to a longer heavy section and then throw something hot at you and it yeah it's a it's a hard album to digest as well like it over the course of an hour a lot happens in those 11 tracks but I really like this one and I think it's one like of their stuff I haven't spent enough time with and I think I've yeah unfairly overlooked this <laughs> Die! 
talking of bands like Mayhem going off the rails a bit with some weird influences, we've got to bring up um, Ulva with their fifth album, Perdition City, which is, I think, at the point where they truly, like, <laughs> shed their true black metal audience and gone for a very different sound. I won't go into too much depth in this. There's an older episode where me and Rob reviewed this um, album at great length. But yeah, this is where fully embracing that that kind of influence of using a lot of synths, clean vocals, um, programmed drums. Like, it, it would be hard to even classify it as a rock album, but it's um, it's an excellent achievement. And really, I think the first true signs of, like, the greatness they'd sort of go on to. Um, I, I, I like William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell, but I don't think it... I don't think it's quite as focused as Perdition City, which, um, yeah, really showed this band sort of spreading their wings and truly shedding any um, any leaning they had towards the, the old sound. Something we also see around this time is a lot of bands who would go on to be kind of a big deal starting up but not quite hitting their stride yet would Tane put out their first album Rabid Death's Curse which it's, for my money it's fine it's, it's one I've never managed to click with I like the sort of second through to fourth Wattane albums I think are incredible but Rabid Death's Curse never quite worked for me it's, it does just feel a little too derivative but they're a very young band at this point and we know they'd go on to much bigger things. Um, Eiffel Duaf put out the debut formula, which I've actually never heard the original. Like they, they re-released it like two years later as reformula. Um, I think due to being unhappy with the original mix, I'm not quite sure of the story there. But again, it's another band sort of who would do a lot of interesting stuff in the genre. Obviously, not the the, the success of Wutain, but you know they they have their following. And then Primordial put out Spirit of Earth of Flame, which is their third album, and I, I, I really hadn't delved into early Primordial edifice. I don't have ever listened to anything pre The Gathering Wilderness. But I was surprised how much like they already sort of had found their sound at this point. If you listen to a song like Gods to the Godless, it very much has that like amazing melodic sensibility and like melancholy that like made to the nameless dead that incredible sound. Um yeah, so definitely want to go to spend more time on. I've only given it the, a cursory once over in preparation for this, but it, yeah, it struck me as surprising how close that band already were to um, what they'd go on to do. So we couldn't talk about black metal in the year two thousand without bringing up Cradle of Filth's Midian, um, which is probably the point I think the band would most get accused of selling out at. So after their first three albums, this is their fourth album, so it follows on from. Cruelty and the Beast, like, people like who dislike Cradle of Filth even talk about Dusk and Her Embrace and stuff like that being kind of rather excellent examples of the genre. Midian, uh, revisiting, it's funny, like, uh, I was aware of this at the time, like, the, the video for Her Ghost in the Fog used to play on music TV, and at that age, I did not know what to do with Danny Phil's vocals, like, they were just utterly hilarious to me. And the whole presentation of the band kind of is funny, much like seeing pictures of Immortal in that age. But I've I've come to, like, have a lot more time for that kind of style. And actually, revisiting Midian, I enjoyed it. I don't think it quite holds up to the, the quality of their, their earlier stuff. But I kind of like the kind of pantomime over-the-topness to it. It's, um... 
it's just very catchy in a lot of ways. Like I, I kind of like the faux kind of orchestra stuff they've got throughout it. The the occasional Sarah Jezebel Diva backing vocals fit really nicely. I quite appreciate Danny Phil's vocal style now. I mean, I've gone back to later albums and they don't really hold up for me in the same way. Like stuff like Ninfetamin, I, I think that's definitely where I'd sort of drop off on um, on Cradle of Filth now. But as as black metal sellout albums go. I think I, Midian definitely had some merits, and there's there's some really interesting songwriting and and cool ideas in there for all the kind of pomp and silliness that goes along as part of Cradle of Filth shtick. Another album I love from this era is uh, Niflheim's third album, Servants of Darkness. So Niflheim started in a uh, started in 1990, but didn't really get their first album out until 95, so they're a little bit behind that wave, but. They're, they're kind of standalone because they don't have the classic Swedish sound. Like, there's a lot of, like, kind of thrash metal in their sound. I think there's a lot of, like, worship of, like, new wave of British heavy metal going on. And Servants of Darkness just stands as an immensely catchy, like, really riff-driven album with loads of um, great, like, lead guitar work, these really kind of over-the-top vocals. It... It's excellent, but it has this weird thing that I think only works in black metal where it's the kind of the sound of it is quite thin. Like it doesn't feel like there's a lot of like doubling up of guitars. Like there's a lot of kind of empty space in it. And it always has this slight element of like it just doesn't feel like it's that well played. Like it it is, but the way it's recorded gives it this very raw kind of like the sound like you're in the band's practice space just uh just hearing them really go for it like it doesn't it's not the it, but it's not not tight like the drummer on this album is is a young martin axenrot so it's tight as all hell it's just because of that production there's something there's something a bit odd about it but i think that just adds to its charm there's something about the the combination of those two genres in this like the black metal influence and the thrash influence that just makes this kind of really intense in your face but also still like very fun and catchy and complete with Niflheim's totally over the top uh leather and spikes image um yeah th it's just a really complete package it's it's a great deal of fun and I also I've made it sound very raw like it's not it's just there's something about the mix of it to me that that feels feels very kind of live and real and yeah it gives the album a lot of charm
Another slightly older band that were kind of into an interesting point in time was uh, Rotting Christ with their sixth album, Kronos. Uh, Kronos is an interesting one. It's sort of on the heavier end of their stuff. So two years later, they put out Genesis, which very leans into the kind of goth direction. They, they sort of took a big detour into, and I still include elements of in their sound. Um, but I, I'd say Kronos on the whole is kind of heavier, and it does have some great stand-up moments, stuff like uh, Thou Art Blind and URI. Some weird stuff in it as well, like Glory of Sadness, the final track's quite a strange sort of melodic departure for the band. But as it stands, I think of that sort of middle Ross and Christ period, it's, it's probably one of the one of the better albums, but I think um, they're a band that sort of started very strong and then really came into their own around 2007's uh, Fagonia, which, yeah, just amazing. Like, And honestly, them having the odd album in the middle like this, which is, like, just pretty good, is, is kind of incredible because I forget how short a existence they've had. Like, their first album, Thy Mighty Contract, came out in 93. By the year 2000, they were already on their sixth album. And even at their weakest, these albums still have like two or three really great tracks to them. One of the issues about this Rotten Christ album is it's one of the rare ones where Themis wasn't drumming for the band. So it was a session drummer. So it, I think at this point as well, Rotten Christ had very much just become the Sackish show. Like it was all, all his work on this one. He's got a, a keyboard player named George Credited who's... I think kind of from more of the goth industrial sound, so people like Jim Morbid, long gone from the band, and even his his brother's influence isn't there, so it is very much just his vision. But they, they come up with some really cool stuff, and I, I think at this point you can really hear that sound they're sort of evolving towards. This just isn't quite there yet. One I've got to mention only in passing, because I haven't I just haven't spent enough time in it, and uh, shamefully I actually don't know it that well already, is... Um, the one-off uh, kind of legendary album from Weakling from San Francisco, uh, Dead as Dreams, which is is one of those <laughs> black metal albums with such a like kind of um, reputation because let's say one done for the band, the album is now impossible to get hold of. Like I think Discogs banned it being listed because there's so many kind of fakes out there. But yeah, definitely like an early an early staple of the US uh, BMC. I, I need to do a, a US black metal episode at some point, so I think I'll revisit that then. But yeah, just want to mention this is this is one of the sort of big deal black metal albums from the time period, even if I think it's one that really made its mark quite a time after the band broke up. I mean, I think it's released post the, uh, the band's breakup. They're only active for two years. All right, I'm going to power through some stuff so we're not on this all night. I want to keep the episode under two hours if possible. Moving on quickly to melodic death metal, we have a, a couple of real classics came out this year, if not like kind of the massive shed load of, of albums I've sort of was expecting from this. One I've got to bring up because I, I think it's um, I definitely like a higher point in their discography is Children of Bodom's Follow the Reaper. Their, um, their third album which kind of marked a slight departure from the hate breeder sound the year before, um, is, is for me, I think, the last like truly great album Children of Bodom did. As much as I enjoy moments from like Hate Crew Death Roll and Are You Dead Yet, I think particularly Hate Crew Death Roll has quite a long tail to it. The last like three tracks are kind of forgettable. Whereas going back to Follow the Reaper, start to finish, I think this is, this is really solid. I, I like all the tracks on it. Even if, say, like they had gone in a 
marginally more commercial direction um with with songs like hate me and every time i die like having a proper ballad in there and one with the i don't give a fuck if you hate me kind of sing-along chorus but then moments like uh bonum after midnight or children of decadence are just immensely catchy and we're seeing the band move away from that sort of real neoclassical style of solo in into a more like kind of just traditional heavy metal shredding but i think also with that getting more proficient at their instruments the kind of uh yane warman alexi leo trade-off is is fairly ridiculous on on this and so it's lost some of the 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 kind of slight black metalisms i'd say the first two albums have for a more kind of um just yeah more kind of rocky sound but with that does come a huge degree of catchiness. Like, this, this album is immensely memorable, even to the point where we get to the massive solo trade-off in Kissing the Shadows. You know, three minutes of that song is basically just solo at the end of it, but the riff writing's so good, the soloing's tasteful enough, all really engaging. And, and I think Alexi has really found his, like, sort of trademark growl at this point. Um, yeah, for, for me, I, I still think this holds up as an absolutely excellent album yeah while i went off the boil a bit on this band in later years like this kind of stuff definitely had a huge influence on my music taste so yeah r.i.p alexi leo like you put out a couple of really incredible albums who I think was really into a, like sort of a young age uh, hypocrisy put out into the abyss which I believe like a fifth album um, and is another like real highlight from their career so not too long after sort of reforming um, after their like sort of breakup around the final chapter this is a really solid one of theirs I'm not gonna go into too much detail because we covered them like a couple of years ago when I did like hypocrisy's full discography but it's got a couple of like real highlight tracks for them stuff like uh fire in the sky and fold the sorrow death row like really well written like of their more melodic style tracks it's just a shame the production is a bit weird on this one it's there's something just off about the sound of it but if it wasn't for that yeah this probably would be their 
like the favorite of mine of their style um peter tigrant uh, had a very busy year as well so not only did he sort of write and record this he also um was involved in the the children of bodom album um the enslave album immortal like he was yeah sort of um doing production mixing engineering for a lot of those bands like uh his studio seemed to be in full swing in the year 2000. Alright, this next one I'm covering somewhat begrudgingly. Um, in Flames put out their fifth album, Clayman. And this is an album of theirs that is fairly acclaimed. Like, I think it's it's somewhat of a fan favourite. And certainly, you know, back when I was still seeing In Flames live, like, a lot of tracks of this would make it into the set list. For me, it was always the one where they they finally written off the old style, like... Colony was a bit of a departure, and with Clayman, you knew the Jester Race Horacle sound was was gone for good. They were on onto something new, and it's those those first three tracks are are immensely catchy and memorable. Bullet Ride, Pinball Map, Only for the Week, but with a song like Only for the Week, as catchy and fun as it as it is, like that sort of keyboard passage in the chorus is so cheesy and over the top and. I think, like, actually listening to an album like this, you can totally see where the band were going in that kind of um, very sort of accessible commercial sound. Like, they are one of those bands that really push the boundaries of what can still be classed as death metal in the in the melodic death metal tag. Like, this is not a heavy album for anything other than Anders' uh, vocal delivery, which, again, isn't even that heavy. Um, it's got a few cool moments towards towards the end of it. I, I really like uh, the second to last track, Suburban Me, which features like an excellent guest solo by Chris Amott. But yeah, otherwise, it, it's an album sort of I, I tend to stay away from. I can't really deal with much after the early Inflame stuff. Right, so moving on to, to yet another genre. Um, this this is a lot I've like sort of classified as loosely classic heavy metal. There's a few big ones. Um, we have I Made and Come Back with Brave New World, the kind of reintroduction of Bruce Dickinson to the band. Um, and I know it's it's kind of again another sort of fan favorite, and a, a lot I think would hold up as probably the best of the the kind of later era of Iron Maiden. And I really enjoy it. It's just another album I think has got a bit of a long tail to it. But like moments like Ghosts of Navigators, happily watch that live at any point. But it's also interesting seeing like um, a couple of these others will sort of play into this. Like there was definitely sort of a market for this kind of sound again, which is funny because honestly, Iron Maiden kind of feel like the antithesis of Limp Bizkit at this point in time, but for whatever reason, they were totally able to, like, resurrect their their sort of, um, you know, massive status around this era. Um, and kind of the opposite world, you have uh, Halford's, Rob Halford's debut album, uh, Resurrections, which is showing, like, him going off from Priest for a while. And it's an album I'd never checked out before today, and it's kind of cool. It sort of sits in that more sort of painkiller-esque... Uh, sort of heavier end of Judas Priest sound um, with a couple of like really cool guitarists on it yeah on first listen I really enjoyed it but I don't sort of go in so much these days for that, that kind of old school heavy metal but definitely feels like one though there'll be some value in revisiting an album really throwing back to a classic uh, heavy metal style that came out this year was the Lord Weird Slough Fegs Down Among the Dead Men 
um, their third album, um, and this is at the point where both um, Mike Scalzi and um, John Cobbett are in the band. Obviously, Mike would remain as their their vocalist and guitarist for the very entire time, but John Cobbett, um, to be Hammers of Misfortune fame, their, their first album would come out next year, and Mike would work together in that band at the same time. This, whereas um, there were a lot more progressive and sort of odd influences going on in Hammers, uh, Dan Among the Dead Men is far more like a classic metal, like really riffy, loads of great hooky choruses. Um, like so much of it like hangs on um, Mike's fantastic vocal delivery. He's got this really kind of engaging voice, like just just a brilliant singer but he also has that great element of being the the, uh, the over the tops kind of storyteller as well with it like songs going through all sorts of um of weird uh, like varying topics like something like traders and gunboats is all about like kind of uh sci-fi stuff but then like uh cauldron of blood and troll pack are far more kind of fantasy so it's it's kind of it's kind of an all over the place album in terms of themes but Again, it harkens back to a classic era that's that wouldn't be out of place for a lot of those new wave of British heavy metal bands. And also, it just sounds really good. It's got an amazing kind of tone to the album. Like The guitars just sound really good, as as you'd expect from two, two people of the skill level of, of Mike and John on this. Um, I wouldn't say it quite lives up to like the best of this band. The next album, The Traveller, I, I think... Um, I was far more into, and I, I I really liked that one for doing a full concept rather than with this one having kind of um, a lot of scattered different topics. Now, in terms of impact, I'm not really sure kind of how popular Slaufeg were at the time, but as with a lot of those kind of projects from this era in San Francisco, they, I think a lot of them kind of reached their real fame kind of way after like a lot of these albums came out, like. Obviously, John was also in Ludicre at the time with Aesop Decker, which, um, which again, are a band now massively respected, but at the time, like, weren't quite, I, I don't know, weren't quite picked up. And, yeah, Slaufeg, it feels like, at this point in time, what's going on sort of culturally in the metal scene, I can't imagine playing a style this old school would have... Um, would have been attracting a lot of younger fans at this stage. But despite that, I do think the album has like a lot of staying power. It's still sort of really enjoyable 20 years past its release. <laughs>
the logical progression from this is talking about another band with a serious like classic metal influence and an album that I think might have one of the biggest reputations like following it than anything we're covering today. This is Electric Wizard with their third album, Dope Throne. Now, I've never been the biggest Electric Wizard fan, like something about their styles never really clicked with me. But even I can admit going into this album, there is something very special about the sound they crafted. And you can see why it's had that near infinite influence it's had, like, post, you know, all this time post its release. The amount of bands copying exactly what they went for of kind of stripping down those Sabbathy riffs, filling out the sound with this, this massive wall of noise, like just the huge crushing riff. And then these long kind of sections of just like feedback or ring out. Like it's a very kind of all consuming album, really engaging. And like a 70 minute runtime is, is, is fairly exhausting in some ways, but it is pretty monumental and sort of taking those Sabbath influences and turning it into something so incredibly sort of, I don't know, scary and almost apocalyptic is is really sort of impressive, like finding a way to revitalise that sound however many years on. It's interesting in context of the year of the whole, actually, it's something this sort of huge came out from the Doom scene, because actually it really seems of all the scenes I've been looking through that kind of seem to have suffered or not had like a huge amount of notable is the wrong word, but a huge amount of like kind of landmark releases, ones that went on to have some acclaim. For Doom, you've just got this, and I maybe I've maybe I've missed something in my research, but I couldn't find a lot of other a lot of other Doom albums. But yeah, like you have Dope Front, <laughs> yeah, everything shied away before this, or maybe this was the catalyst that sort of brought Doom back to us in a big way later. I'm I'm really not sure. The other kind of album in a I'd say somewhat comparable vein to this at least is is Orange Goblin with the Big Black, their third album. So I guess this is this is another Doom album of some merit. It's possibly the most famous Orange Goblin album, and one that every time I've seen them live, at least they still seem to sort of choose a lot of tracks um, to go along live. And actually, it's quite interesting because it is the point where Orange Goblin make the departure from their kind of stoner roots, like first two albums, particularly the debut. Uh, frequencies from planet 10 like has all this kind of like over the top weed references like you look at a song like magic carpet but uh with the big black they get really into their booze so you've got electric wizard with the with the uh obvious uh weed smoking influence and orange goblin with tracks where you hear like the singer leaving drunken answer phone messages that don't make any sense and yeah where they where they came came to the like title of booze metal so yeah i guess i guess the big black is quite a good counterpoint to dope throne dope throne is an immensely kind of dark and upsetting album in its way whereas uh the big black is just a huge amount of fun so they're quite a good kind of counterpoints in the uh the general genre of uh of like that kind of <laughs> for one of the better words stoner rock doom sound so another genre that seems kind of quiet at least in my research um 
but had a couple of real uh, notable ones was Grindcore. So um, one I got a comment on, although I don't know it too well, is Napalm Death's Enemy of the Music Business, which I think is largely seen as a bit of a return to form after particularly diatribes, but like a couple of weaker albums in a row. Um, one that's worth looking up purely for the album cover alone, if, if nothing else, is a contrastic self-titled absolutely bizarro grind but as with bands from the czech republic uh they they have a very unique take on things there's another really important czech republic album coming up but yeah that's uh what i wanted to shout out just for yeah one of the weirdest album covers um now the the album i really wanted to cover from the grind scene which i i think really did have it's not like one of those great albums that got buried i think this has had very much lasting impact and it definitely had its fans at the time i'm sure of it was uh nazim or nazim i've never no quite sure how you meant to pronounce that uh with their second album human 2.0 which is really like i'm not the biggest grind guy but when listening to grind this is exactly the thing i'm after this kind of really chunky bass heavy um grind so they are a free piece but they've got a bass guitar player and the vo the the guitars are like sort of doubled up enough that um that the kind of that sound is really full like i like i enjoy stuff like worm rock with like the the zero bass kind of grind like there's there's definitely kind of really good stuff in that vein but there's something about this that just i think with that really thick low end that the, the the grooves are just more more apparent to me um something is that i found interesting with this as well because human 2.0 feels like your kind of archetypal early 2000s grind album but it doesn't have the thing i kind of always have in my head with grind of the the high low vocal trade-off like there's a little bit of it between so the drummer's credited with with growls the guitarist is credited with screams and they sort of uh, trade that off but honestly the screams sit in a cool like mid-range and the growls are quite mid-range as well so they're just a nice sort of um trade there like it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like the absolute extreme you get in a lot of grind of the high versus low anyway i'm focusing on that wave too much um i think the, the thing with this as well is it's a really good intro to grindcore if you've got it you know you've got those kind of friends who sort of write the genre off as a whole but enjoy stuff like death metal i think play them songs like shadows or alarm because they are just so immensely catchy they have the sections of completely over the top like um really like heavy blasting but those are interspersed with these like ultra catchy riffs and like yeah makes the songs really kind of memorable the only issue i have with this album is it is fucking exhausting to sit through for one sitting about 25 tracks almost 40 minutes long and it just is unrelenting like it, it it's why i'd never listen to two worm rot albums back to back or why i'm quite happy that gridlink's entire discography is about 40 minutes long like i i love this stuff but i do struggle to listen to it for more than half an hour and yeah human 2.0 is an intense listen but I think it still thinks uh, holds up as a real like high point of the genre of grind, not just at this point in time, but from from this stage onwards.
Sorry for a dramatic tonal shift. Uh, I had a quick look into power metal, and um, I don't, I can't imagine it was having a great year in comparison to what was sort of going on in the mainstream, like the kind of macho tough guyness of a lot of that, that sort of new metal era probably wouldn't have uh, gelled too well with the kind of over the top um, theatricalness of some of the genre. And like I checked out a few albums and it wasn't anything that had massively stuck with me. Like Symphony X put out the new mythology suite, which I think if I'd heard it at the time was a very cool album, but honestly it's one where every single thing about it they just improved on the odyssey like they just took all those ideas and sort of stepped them up one um so like in hindsight it's not one i'd like want to stay spend too much time on um alexi leo had another army is involved with synergies to hell and back which uh like synergy i think are not a popular band but i quite liked their third album their second one to hell and back totally went over my head like the it was it was possibly a bit too influenced by the sort of commercial stuff around at the time. The two probably most popular or most notable from this era, I think, would be Rhapsody of Fire's Dawn of Victory and Nightwish's Wishmaster, but they're both bands I've never really cracked myself, so I don't want to comment on uh, where they stand in the general uh, the general catalogue. But, um, but yeah, Power Metal fans, get in touch. Let me know what I missed from 2000, because, like, yeah, I, it it's a genre I'm not familiar enough with, but I didn't really quite know where to look for some of the stuff that might have got missed in this uh, time period. Well, the obvious move from power metal is onto the, the more progressive scene, and there's some interesting stuff from this time period. So there's bands I've covered in great detail, like Nevermore puts out Dead Heart in a Dead World, which is an album where I think if it was all at the strength for the first half would be like an absolute classic. But um, yeah, it still was definitely something that put uh, Nevermore on the map a bit more. It had so many obvious like singles and that and felt like something the label really pushed. And uh, definitely a few years later was something that got me massively into that kind of style. Um, Sculptured, the, the band of some of the other guys from Agaloc put out Apollo Ends. Um, which, again, really interesting album. You can go back to our Agalock episode to um, to hear more about that. Uh, there's a few that I think... Well, I, I guess Sculpture probably flew fairly under the radar. Like, um, one that definitely would have gone long under the radar, but it's very good, is the debut debut from Gone Inish, uh, the self-titled Gone Inish, who are a very left-field, like, Japanese kind of... Kind of quite intense progressive metal band they're they have like elements of like black and death metal mixing with this very complex technical kind of rocky parts um um some amazing moments of like extreme melodicism uh like uh, the vocalist is is just utterly bizarre like she has a real strange range and like going for these very intense shrieks to these hyper clean like very poppy sounding vocals it's it's a wild ride i don't think it quite holds up to the next album that just it's not a very good recording like just at least like the version of i've i've heard of it like on youtube like made it sound a bit rubbish i don't know maybe maybe it's a bad upload uh, frustratingly like a lot of japanese stuff it's really hard to get hold of gonish's music like they they're not up on Bandcamp. I don't believe they're on Spotify, but I could be wrong. Um, but I'd highly advise going, going, giving that album a listen. Like it is, 
it is incredibly unique, if not necessarily what was going to uh, to sort of uh, raise the genre at the time. Stuff that I think did really flirt with success, like in the sort of progressive rock realm, there were a few interesting ones we had. Porcupine Tree's Lightbulb Sun, which um, I'm more into the latest, slightly more metallic era of Porcupine Tree when like Gavin Harrison joins the band. Lightbulb Sun is much like a couple of the albums that followed it, kind of very much focused on catchy short rock songs with like big chorus hooks. Um, although like there there is certainly some of uh, Steve Wilson's progressive touch throughout it, and it, it has a lot of um, really memorable moments, but it's just a little too kind of focused on the choruses for for it to be one of my favourite of theirs. But it's still a really decent one. Um, my friend Finn's going to kill me for not spending more time on it, but one I should definitely mention is uh, Queens of the Stone Age put out Rated R, their second album, which I think, again, would be one where Queens of the Stone Age suddenly rocketed to, like, real success with uh, tracks like Lost Art of Keeping the Secret, which I remember when I was first getting into music was, yeah, hard to escape. Um, and it, I, I really enjoy the track. I, I quite enjoy the album as a whole. It's, it's one of those weird ones as well where... It, it still feels utterly mad that Queens of the Stone Age got as big as they did because their albums are really obtuse and like full of full of kind of off-putting stuff like stuff where they they purposely play like sort of slightly dissonant stuff or or just go like oddly out of tune and play around with timings and so on like they are they are certainly an experimental band to have got that huge. Uh, main thing I, I dislike Rated R for is it's got Field Good Hit of the Summer on it, which I just think is a really obnoxious joke, and it's a pain that that's like one of the more famous tracks by this band. One that I think did pretty well at the time, although I, I like can't say it's good, is uh, Monster Magnet's God Says No, which um, after their quite a very commercial turn with Power Trip, they just went even more down that sort of like uh accessible rock direction and it just it just doesn't have the, the the songs to carry it like this is really where monster magnet again for that period i just couldn't care less about like um years later they come back with stuff i i find quite engaging but yeah their their sort of middle period output everything after the first three albums i i really struggle with something that's actually i feel i think it did really well at the time and i feel was very in the face of uh, what was commercially going on at this time, and say, like, start of the episode, new metal and uh, kind of pop punk and rock was getting kind of quite homogenized, and ex the, the big stuff was extremely accessible. Something that was very weird, but is like sort of outlived this time, and, and the band are kind of huge off the back of it, I believe, is Godspeed You Black Emperor put out their second album, Lift Your Skinny Fists Like Antennas to Heaven. This monumental, like, hour and a half, like, uh, really kind of progressive, incredibly atmospheric instrumental rock, which, I mean, although I would put them in the kind of alternative rock sort of category, the amount of influence this kind of, like, post-rock sound has had on a lot of metal, like, can't be understated. Like, that is, like, there's so many bands who have taken elements from 
bands like Godspeed, um, Isis also put out Celestial this year, which I think is has got some of that post rock leaning in it as well. And yeah, that's that's had such a huge effect on the metal scene, like to the point now where the incorporating ideas like this into black metal is quite a quite a natural idea but yeah so definitely one of the really important albums from the year 2000 was uh lift your skinny fists like it's it's one i don't know well enough but um yeah would definitely want to spend more time on after this so another one of the classic metal subgenres that had a kind of very uneventful year and surprisingly is thrash metal Really, at this point in time, I think thrash metal was still, like, seen as this sort of, I guess, somewhat frowned upon genre. We're, like, about five years away from the thrash revival getting into full swing. So the only albums I sort of noted down of being um, of, of particular interest was Destruction put out All Hell Breaks Loose, which saw the return of Schema to the band. Schema? I have no idea how to say that. Their vocalist, uh, the main vocalist name, after the bizarre... Um, the least successful human cannibal like a couple of years earlier there they're very ill-advised foray into grunge and while all hells breaks loose is not their best album yet um it's it's pretty cool and it was great to see them sort of returning to the sound they did so well on albums like release from agony so it's got its merits actually it's another one from this era i think it is slightly let down by peter tackman's involvement where uh, much like, say, the Immortal album, I just don't like the recording that much, or the Hypocrisy album, for that matter. He did a very good job on Follow the Reaper, so, you know, they can't all be winners. And one I think um, most people would hold up as the real, like, thrash classic from this era is The Crown with Death Race King, which is, is kind of the everyone's go-to album for The Crown. Just a furious, like, assault of amazing death thrash. Uh, they're a band I've not spent enough time with, but this album's always struck me as like immensely catchy and just really, really enjoyable. And it, particularly interesting in hindsight because it comes from an era where I haven't got uh, a lot of comparisons for it. So that finally brings me to the point I kind of really wanted to make about the year 2000. And sorry for an hour of preamble before I get to the point. Um, the So I chose the year 2000 as a start point for like a random year in metal to cover because it was the year I got into music and actually ahead of it I didn't have the highest hopes that it would be a, a really strong year for metal and you, as you can see going through the genres it's not really the case there's some standout greatness like stuff like Dope Throne is or like Dead as Dreams like there are moments of amazing stuff Black metal is a weird one. I kind of missed like, the point I was, like, I was trying to make there. I sort of forgot to mention it. Is um, I did a lot of research into other black metal albums from this period. And what was really interesting is I found this wealth of bands who put out albums who kind of never... like they, they, They're not still going. There's a lot of... There's a huge amount of black metal releases from this period. But I was, so, I was totally not familiar with a load of it. And like, so the old guard were kind of in a weird place for a lot of them. And then there's this new wave of like somewhat copycats of the Norwegian scene and someone obviously pushing it forward to new places. But it seems like the kind of general eye of the metal scene was off the genre and these bands weren't the ones that managed to uh, stick with it for that, that big return of black metal we'd have in, you know, 
eight or so years from this point. The genre that I didn't realise was going to be sort of ludicrously good this year was death metal. I, I don't know why I sort of had in my head that, you know, late 90s, early 2000s was a bit of a quiet period for the genre as a whole. But yeah, there, were, there was a lot of very, very good death metal that kind of, when, you know, taken as a whole, puts 2000 up there as an incredible year. So I'll go through some of the ones like I've covered at length before that um, were really amazing to start with. Like, so from the old guard, you had the likes of Morbid Angel put out their sixth album, Gateways to Annihilation, which after the kind of inaccessible technical oddity of formulas, Gateway was with this far more straightforward, absolute steamroller of an album, just like just one of the most powerfully heavy things a band would ever do. I'd say, for me, it's definitely their heaviest album. Niall put out Black Seeds of Vengeance, which is, for many people, like a career highlight for them. I know, obviously, Annihilation of the Wicked's the, the, their true sort of landmark one, but I think Black Seeds of Vengeance is an absolutely incredible album of that earlier period. Like, so creative and weird, but yet still able to kind of really capture the spirit of a lot of um a lot of like metalheads at the time and another like old staple who just uh put out like probably their career best in, in my opinion was vader brought out their fourth album litany after the the absolute kind of um fury of uh black to the blind they did an album that took that to the next level just these these really short immensely to the point like pummeling of an album like the first two albums have got, like, lots of variations in pace, like, whereas, like, Litany and uh, Black to the Blind are just, just completely, like, full pelt throughout. And and I think Litany stands out for, although the drum sound is a bit, a bit of an odd choice, I think it really works. And it does mean that it's, like, the album that showcases Doc's drumming beyond anything else. Like, and it's, it's just half an hour of, like wall-to-wall great tracks like stuff like uh wings kefir uh cold demons all shit they still have in the live set now and it's just absolutely like just perfect kind of distillation of what vader can do without any of the kind of melodic trappings they add later like uh, all the solos are just whammy bar nonsense like the the kind of the riffing is all this kind of very, very tight, very quick death thrash. Like, all the kind of best elements of those first two albums just tuned to the nth degree so they, they can just play these kind of often quite technical parts but just absolute precision and that like kind of hammering drum performance in the background. Uh, we've, we've gone into great depth on Litany in, in an older episode, so I won't, I won't hark on that one too much. One that was... Um, from that kind of older older group that I was um, not familiar with ahead of the research for this, but was really impressed with, was Immolation's Close to a World Below. So Immolation have been around in death metal since the very early days, you know, starting out under the name Rigor Mortis in 86. Close to the World Below um, by 2000 was their fourth full-length album, and it's the last one to feature original guitarist uh, Tom Wilkinson, and it features uh, drummer Alex Hernandez, who was on the, the album before and would be on the album after. And it was also, if you remember, I think the first Death Metal Gems um, episode I did had the band Fallen Christ, um, which was a band who primarily were just crazily fast. And 
that is one of the kind of main features of this album that kind of um i don't know like sold it to me more so than some of their other albums like emulation is the the drumming is just totally frenetic and totally all-consuming on this one whereas you listen to like later in relation drumming is fantastic and a really integral part of the sound but on this particular one alex Hernandez just absolutely steals the show sadly this seems to be basically all he's done drumming wise he's these three albums with relation um one with fallen christ and uh, and one with another band called uh requiem aeternum uh put out in 2004 so like he's this incredible drumming talent that is somewhat sort of lost to the ages because this is far from the most famous sort of immolation era i'd say their early stuff and their later stuff is more popular than this middle period of albums but actually like i would say close to a world below really holds a candle to those albums like um dawn of possession or here and after it's got a lot of like sort of it's got all the things that made those albums great with a undoubtedly more technical more proficient performance like immolation are a band who they kind of found their sound straight away but they've just been perfecting it over the years and and much like say say an act like cannibal corpse like they never deviate hugely from the formula but they always find like tiny ways to innovate within there and with close to world Belight, it was putting this really complex ever-changing um drum performance so front and center i mean you can never distract too much from rog figner's incredible guitar work that guy is just just special as a guitarist he has a totally unique and recognizable sound and and uh, uh vocalist ross doland at this stage like his voice is very much how i recognize it now with those first two albums he sounds kind of different by this album he sounds exactly like if you've heard any of the the later era immolation albums he sounds like like he does on those like that very clear ultra low scream like and it just like this is also a weird thing with immolation or a band that's been going for that many albums like say like they, they feel like a similar presence to cannibal corpse of like they're the the new york sort of equivalent almost of old school death metal bad been around since the 80s doing this same kind of vein of death metal without a, a single kind of nod to the sellout album or anything like that it's just interesting say to contrast them to cannibal corpse how they've seemingly always got the tone right like they always seem to have albums that just sound fantastic like i don't know the how they nail that to such an extent whereas cannibal corpse i love but have had albums where i i feel like you know the guitar tone was somewhat lacking and it, it somewhat let down the otherwise very strong songwriting but yeah if you have overlooked this uh this middle period of immolation i think definitely dive in and check out the the kind of Alex Hernandez era, because I, I think it, it has something slightly different to offer than some of the other eras of immolation. <laughs> Oh! 
quickly run through a lot of the old school bands that, that put out something something good in this this period. Asphyx put out their um, I think sixth albums on Wings of Inferno, which um, while it's not Last One on Earth or The Rack, it's kind of a great Asphyx album. Like again, one I'd kind of ignored um, until doing the research for this episode because. Honestly, if you've not delved into Asus's late 90s catalogue, they put out a lot of albums in a, in a short period of time. And Wings of Inferno has a lot of what makes Last One on Earth great, like that really gnarly guitar tone, um, slowing down for a lot of like real doomy moments for like building up into the blasty sections. Martin Van Drunen's vocals just sounding like as nasty as ever throughout it. Definitely... Um, if you're wanting more of that kind of style, definitely a good one of theirs to dive into. Christian put out a Conquerors of Armageddon, their uh, their third album, which has similar issues I have with a lot of Christian stuff of fantastically written and delivered death metal, somewhat overpowered by their like very triggered drum sound. But the the writing is top notch. The vocal performance is excellent. Um, and the guitar work is starting to get into that world of, like, the very virtuoso level um, Mossius would get to. Like, later albums, he gets really good at the lead guitar stuff, and there's hints of this there. But, I mean, primarily, it's just supremely tight riffing. If you can look past that, like, very overpowering sort of kick and snare sound, like... Yeah, it's, it's a great album and very cool album cover as well. Macabre put out their first album in seven years, uh, Dharma, which um, I remember really enjoying like when I, when I first got it, but I wonder if um, that kind of weird humour would hold up to anything now. I remember being very impressively played though as well, but definitely definitely an album that walks a fine line between like sort of the humour getting in the way of the riffing. But certainly, certainly I remember it being a very enjoyable listen. At this stage, Entombed were well into their kind of death and roll period, sort of long after the departure of Nicky Anderson. But uh, their 2009 album, Uprising, I think was a real sort of um, return to form after after the kind of disappointing same difference. Like, there's, there's a running thing, actually, I found, um, which I think is true of every Entombed album, of the first two tracks are always great. Um so this one we have uh, Seeing Red and Say It in Slugs, which are definitely the uh, the highlight of the album. And then like the following year, they'd put out Morningstar with the openers of uh, Chief Rebel Angel and Eye for an Eye, which is like the best two tracks on those. Like, I, yeah, don't know what it is. Entombed know how to start an album very strong. Uprising, probably one of, much like a lot of the later period, where maybe the latter half, not quite as good as the opening. But... Still very much worth it for those opening couple of tracks. Dismember put out their um, fifth album, Hate Campaign, which I think he's fairly universally agreed to be probably the weakest Dismember showing. But honestly, of their eight albums, they've never had a bad one. Like, if, if Hate Campaign is the worst thing you put out, um, you're doing pretty damn well as a band because it's still a really, really enjoyable album. One that's like super divisive, and I must admit personally, I never, I've never quite cracked. But it, you know, it was always in a difficult place. Was um, and then your beg by Cryptopsy. So following on from Whisper Supremacy, it's the second album with um, 
with Mike DeSalvo taking the sort of lead vocal position. And there's been a few more kind of uh, lineup changes approaching it. Still some very well-written death metal, possibly possibly going for a touch more accessible sound than the last two albums. But um, yeah, for me, I've never managed to crack it just because I don't love Mike DeSalvo's um, vocal approach. And I, it's not even saying he's bad. It's, you know, when you just have a vocalist, you just can't get on with for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, he definitely is in that category for me. And yeah, so to paint a fair picture of death metal at this point in time, as I say, a lot of the old guard were there putting out, you know, if not their, their sort of best ever work, certainly albums are very much worthy of attention. One band that absolutely shit the bed uh, was Deicide. I have no idea what they were doing on their fifth album, Incinerate Him. First four albums, I hold up as all being really good. Like, obviously, Deicide and Legion, fantastic albums. Once Upon the Cross, probably not quite up to the level of them again, but then Serpents of the Light comes back really strong. Incinerate him I, I is unlistenable. I, I I I think maybe Torment in Hell is worse, but geez, this run of like the albums they put out in the early two thousand bizarre. I I just don't know what happened there. But yeah, if you've never checked out this one, avoid it like the plague. <laughs> Something I can't skip over is um, Six Feet Under put out the first in their covers album series. This is Graveyard Classics One, which is truly bizarre with. Chris Barnes, like, ex-members of Massacre, Cannibal Corpse, and Death coming together to do covers of Scorpions, Jimi Hendrix, Deep Purple, and Dead Kennedy songs, which more or less play with them in the original format, but just have Chris Barnes sort of growling over the top of them. If a metal album was to go into the So Bad It's Good category... Now, what really cements uh, the year 2000 as an important year in death metal history is what some of the newer bands were doing. One that obviously weren't quite at their peak, but well worth uh, mentioning, is Decapitated from Poland. They put out their debut album, Winds of Creation, uh, this year. So it started off in 96 as Decapitated Saints, clearly uh, clearly kind of referencing their worship for Vader. And one of the real notable things about these guys early on was just the ludicrous level of their musicianship in those kind of early demos in this album. Their first... Um, First demo, I think, has now been re-released, re the Cerementral Gardens. And, like, Fitek is a was, like, a tiny child at the point of that album. And they already, or demo, I should say, already playing a ludicrous level of musicianship. And you get to Winds of Creation, and I think the band are aged... I think uh, Vitek is the youngest and Vogue the oldest, and aged between 16 and 18 at this point. So... Really, really young people. While uh, Winds of Creation is a bit more derivative than their latest stuff, like, I don't mean that in a bad way, it's just like, by the time we get to Nihility, they're truly forging their own path, doing something so uniquely them. Winds of Creation, you can see their influences. There is there is a bit of Vader in the sound, there is um, certainly nods to like the New York brutal death metal, particularly... Um, Sauron's vocal approach very much feels reminiscent of those bands that sort of came off the um, the kind of uh, suffocation worship. But there is elements where you see their own style coming through. Blessed has this kind of technical moment in the second half where we truly get to see that the showcase of Vogue's ridiculous guitar skills. Like, he's playing some incredible things at this point. 
Uh, the drumming on this album is utterly fantastic. Kind of a similar-ish drum production to um, to Litany, actually, which is somewhat unsurprising because the producer on this was Peter from Vader, so I think there is some kind of, uh, you know, overlap in staff working between the two albums. And what's very cool is, you know, for a band this young, um, getting to work with who was a clear influence on them um, with their first release. And yeah, they, they put out this this kind of just immensely solid slab of death metal with these touches of what's to come. Um, there's moments where we actually get to see uh, Decapitated doing stuff that they sort of would never really do so much um, after this point. Like, Nine Steps ends with Vogue doing kind of a properly melodic flashy solo which isn't something he'd really put into decapitated so much after this point like his technicality always sort of ended up in more in his rhythm playing rather than going into kind of those sort of lead parts and throughout it's just piles of really catchy kind of very contemporary sounding death metal riffs like just really solidly constructed songs and again as i say ludicrous that it's coming from such young musicians like there is a huge level of invention in there, but also a level of absolute, like, kind of focused technicality. I just don't know how these guys were this good, this young. If you say, look at, say, like, the early Finnish or Swedish scene, where you had all those young musicians, like, five, ten years earlier, putting stuff together, many of them were very technically proficient and, um, and creative in this way. But few were this tight like and maybe that's some of that is the uh the advances of technology that um, allowed a band to you know kind of studio tinker things into into this kind of sound but going on those demos i can't believe that was applied there and they, they were already like coming up to that level so yeah um if you have for whatever reason ever overlooked uh decapitate his demo because that doesn't quite have the legacy of say the following three albums um go back uh like their debut wins of creation is is truly uh truly special <laughs>
So Decapitated were hardly the only interesting debut from this era. We got the first um, full-length album from Australia's The Berserker, which um, is a bizarre project in hindsight where in an attempt to like make incredibly extreme music, Luke Kenny fused death metal grind and like extreme like electronica influences like Gabba into his um into his music and made this very very intense like short to the point album of like it's a really furious release and it it's one that will divide people if you can't deal with that like kind of completely over the top like kind of purposely electronic sounding uh program percussion throughout it won't be for you but there are some amazing things um to enjoy on this like the kind of vocal performance of like sam bean luke kenny and uh, additional vocalist toby absolutely kind of intense stuff going on like the the guitar performances are amazing um like in a, in a simple way but like there's a really i think what always sells this album to me is i really like the um the sort of dvd they put out a few years later the principles and practices of the berserker which documents their um their attempt at making this album and it seems so kind of such a fraught process of like you know the hours spent around uh luke kenny's like slowly dying pcs trying to record these incredibly fast precise like technical bits of guitar where while regularly kind of um losing files like all sorts of issues having like the whole there was a whole kind of false start to the project where they meant to work with devon townsend and uh, some other guys out in uh canada that never quite happened and yeah, like, Luke's holding together all these, like, regularly changing lineups. It, it's an amazing story, and it's, like... And it definitely, like, that gives, like, kind of a background to the album that, that sort of really works for me. And it's another one where I sort of enjoy, like, the... There's a massive use of, like, samples and so on, I think, which really... That and the short track links puts me in mind of kind of more grindy stuff. But it has, like... I don't know, it has a grounding in death metal because it's so kind of rigid and precise like it doesn't there doesn't feel like much of a punk energy to this it's far more um far more calculated than that as i say a divisive one but uh certainly interesting we also got the the debut album from impaled which is features some of the guys who sort of um had recently left exhumed to sort of follow a similar path the dead shall remain dead which it's a really cool album somewhat let down by like a bad recording but if you're you're looking for a very good kind of early carcass worship um yeah this you definitely can't go wrong with this one soul reaper um appeared with their their first album written in blood which was formed out of kind of all the other guys from the early dissection lineup uh putting together a kind of a more death metal orientated band and while it's never going to live up to like the Sombalane or anything like that, it's still a very good album. Like it's well worth checking out if you want to get into kind of you know the extended history out from that band. Um, another one that didn't quite land was like the first uh, the first release from Origin. I feel like their self title was definitely a point where those guys were still still finding their feet and like. Paul Ryan's like technical ability hadn't quite got to the point where 
you know, he'd be able to do stuff like, um, particularly like I think Entity is where that band really like hit into a great sound. Um, but you know, it's it's cool they were starting out at this stage, and like as you can see with some of these releases are covering, like the boundaries of technicality are starting to get pushed quite a lot. Like we're not quite hitting that sort of early two thousand and four kind of period where you know stuff like Necrophages was about to blow things wide open, but you know you can see the kind of trend towards that. A debut and actually only album for a band that I think was utterly incredible was uh, another one for the Czech Republic, Lycathia Aflame with Elevenfris, which we've spoken about many episodes ago on the podcast, but I, I've got to cover again because it is just so special. So I mentioned before, Czech Republic, when, when it comes to death or grind, they always seem to have a totally unique take. And like Athea Flame, this this band managed to produce an album that really kind of reinvented brutal death metal. That scene that had been like kind of building in the United States and sort of slowly spreading out around the rest of the world, um, managed to produce like like you know a, quite a kind of quite codified sound to a point. And then like Avia Flame took that, and this this at its core is brutal death metal. It has the ultra low vocals. It has the kind of incredibly pingy, like hyper blasting snare drum throughout. But they they kind of mix that together with all this kind of like very new agey like folk sounds around that like that style, and the mix of the two works like going to all these kind of like um very middle eastern scales throughout throughout all the songs like it, there's something really special like you'll kind of get what i mean by the very opening of a track like land where sympathy where sympathy is air um that kind of first riff where it's sort of it's running up and down this yeah that, that kind of style of scale and then suddenly straight into the blasting but you can still hear that that sort of melody going away in that section. Um, there's also like occasional moments of clean vocals. The lyrics are all this very kind of meditative stuff. It this seems like a lot of um, a lot of that kind of spirituality and philosophy kind of um, kind of lyric writing, which again a far cry from the the kind of um, the main staples of that genre. Technically, I mean, this, this probably isn't truly a, a debut because the, the band were formed from like the kind of ashes of Appalling Spawn who were doing something in a similar vein. But I think what really pushed this to the next level was the introduction of um, drummer Thomas Korn to the lineup, who um, who plays famously with um, Cult of Fire and Death Karma now, um, which are two of the most interesting bands, I, I think, in the modern black metal scene, particularly like uh, Cult of Fire's 2011 and 2013 albums are truly special. Although, yeah, Death Karma's The History of, of Death and Burials Part 2, equally amazing. But yeah, he is such a sort of gifted drummer and he's just such an overwhelming presence on this album. Yeah, it makes for something truly special. So if, you, if you've never heard like Aether of Flame, it's a bit of a pain in the ass to get hold of. I don't think it's on Spotify uh, there is not a reissue as far as I know, but it is up on YouTube, so you, you can hear it. And if you if you have missed this one, it's essential listening. I do make sure you check it out. <laughs> Thank you. 
Speaking of American brutal death metal, Brodekin put out their debut Instruments of Torture, and this is 25 minutes of this like Tennessee-based band just going like fully into that that kind of incredibly heavy sound. Like it's an album I still hear sort of references like a major influence on a lot of those um those more extreme like slam and brutal death bands. Like I wouldn't say it's too deep into the realm of I mean what we would call slam these days. Like it's not into like the true gurgly vocals. It's definitely more of just like, an extreme low. But it does like sort of have those breakdowns in there. Songs are immensely to the point, like ten tracks in this um twenty-five minute runtime and just extremely heavy sounding and with them sticking very like tightly to the the lyrical theme of medieval torture, which for an album sort of this kind of grotesque and nasty sounding like particularly works with the theme it's like you'll know what you're getting with this album from like the opening minute but i think um it's definitely been one with a huge amount of staying power now another debut that it was immensely important like but maybe not so obviously so at the time is we got the first ep from sweden's bloodbath a band uh started i think mainly as like a fun joke um by people like uh, Michael Ackerfeldt, um, Dan Swanow, who's uh, drums, keyboards, and backing vocals in this, and Jonas and Anders from Catatonia. So, you know, members of Edge of Sanity, Opeth, and Catatonia come together to play a, a kind of free track EP that truly worships <laughs> the altar of um, the early Stockholm death metal scene. Um, and, and Sylvie just, like, some of, I'd say, some of their best tracks, like songs like Ominous Blood Vomit, are are just so immensely catchy. It's only 13 minutes long, but it, it sounds fantastic. It's, like, the riff writing is brilliant. Unsurprisingly for guys of this calibre, like, it worked really well. Um, and the band have gone through many, many incarnations since, like, you know, they they would, after the popularity of this EP, go on to put out the debut full-length Resurrection Through Carnage, which I really love. But actually, I think they almost got the tones better on the debut EP. And then, yeah, you'd have the, the infinite sort of lineup changes and they're, they're now a full-fledged, like, um, like, just incredible band in their own right. It no longer kind of feels like this sort of, like, fun tribute done by some people as their, like, side job. It's now actually, like... A really serious going concern but um it's incredible like the humble beginnings of this uh breeding death ep it's kind of amazing to think how much further it would go because i don't think the band at the time ever really had any plans to take it to somewhere more than this <laughs> Oh, 
also, while editing this, I realised I missed out something really important. Um, Dying Fetus had a really good year in 2000. They put out both the Grotesque Impalement EP and Destroy the Opposition. Destroy the Opposition is the final album, their third, with um, Kevin Tarley and uh, Jason Neverton in the band. Jason Neverton obviously would go on to um, lead Misery Index. So he sort of takes his... Wait, so his, he's the kind of bass player and the... the kind of higher of the two vocalists like to trade off against John Gallagher's like real low bullfrog vocals and he'd take that kind of more political influence really bring that to the fore with Misery Index whereas you know um, Dying Features would lean more and more into their kind of the grotesque side of their their sort of stuff and for me Destroy the Opposition is just the culmination of all that early work like Purification Through Violence is a really interesting album, but I think let down by a kind of messy recording. Um, Killing on Adrenaline is excellent, but I think those ideas are really brought to the fore in this this like EP and album that follow onwards. Um, and what Dying Theaters were doing at this point, I think they're starting to get really known for, was that amazing fusing of stuff that was coming out of the brutal death metal scene in New York with ideas from um from hip hop kind of taking like very much like the there's a hip hop influence on the the vocal delivery the kind of rhythms they're going for and it's what makes their song so immediately catchy like John Gallagher is a really kind of noticeable and memorable vocalist despite the fact he is one distinct noise because he arranges it so nicely over the music there's a lot of what we know and love about um later dying fetus in this early stuff as well it is still that kind of um great combination of uh slower heavy like kind of stompy riffing with occasional bursts into absolute tech madness like Sort of the opposition has a great few examples of that um, guitar and bass running up and down the same flashy lick in kind of in perfect time with each other, and like it's not kind of captured to the like ridiculous degree is on later stuff like Rain Supreme, um, where you can like hear exactly every note going on. It, it it's still a bit more raw, but um, I I kind of like that that element to it. I I think. Um, Almost some of their newer stuff is a touch too clean for my taste. Whereas, yeah, Destroy the Opposition sits in that that nice space of, like, it sounds more kind of live and real than the later albums, but it doesn't have, like, the annoying kind of muddiness of their very early stuff. Uh, the the vocals are what really sells with me. I've always said, like, how much I, um, I like John Gallagher's delivery on this, but Jason Neverton has this fantastic growl. Like, he, he gives... For he's he's the great kind of opposite to to John's like really low kind of one note kind of thing. He has a lot of kind of uh, variation and um, quite a lot of enunciation to his his vocal delivery. I think um, Dying Fetus and Misery Index are a band that warrant uh, me delving into in a lot more detail. So I'll probably not go much that much further here. But just to say, yeah, I think this is definitely one of those albums that has sort of the bigger influence of the death metal releases from this year. All right, I'll power through the last couple we've got on the list. Um, so Exhumed put out their, I believe, second album, Slaughter Cult, which, again, if you, the kind of sold by the impaled model of, like, what if, like, a more modern take on Carcass, like, early Carcass, that is, Exhumed once again doing the same thing. I think Slaughter Cult might be some of their best writing. It is just somewhat let down by, I think, the loss of uh, Ross Sewage from the lineup, like, the guy they have doing the low vocals is a good replacement, but 
I, I don't know. I find uh, Ross's like ridiculous lows just sounded so cool with that band, and like now he's back in a lineup that sounds amazing. But anyway, that's a really stupid thing to get hung up on it. Slaughter Gold is yeah some of the the highest level like I think their writing got to in a definite like highlight from the exhumed catalogue, and it's cool like you know you're two bands at this point in time keeping that kind of early carcass um, style death metal alive after you know. Again, a, a kind of slightly new breath of life in the mid '90s of the Finnish scene, and then yeah, still, still is kind of showing its influence this many years later. It's kind of amazing, like yeah, the extent to which Carcass had um, had inspired people. The band Pounds of Christ put out their, um, f I believe, third album, Soul Collector, at this period. So I think Pounds of Christ, very much, especially in this kind of era, was seen as like the side project to. Um, the probably more successful Ill Disposed, but uh, Soul Collector, probably the nastiest album put out by either of those bands. It has like this really kind of um, oppressive atmosphere to it. It's um, it's another one of like it's one of theirs that actually leans far more away from their kind of like melodic trappings like Panzer Christ. If you look at say either kind of Room Service after this or Outpost before it. They throw in a lot of kind of like more melodic elements using like some keyboards and a lot of kind of quite like, you know, melodic lead guitar. Uh, that's not really there on Soul Collector. Soul Collector is just this kind of like pummeling, nasty, mid-paced death metal throughout. I mean, it's certainly that on both those other albums as well, but this one just seems more focused on sounding horrible. Um vocalist Bo Summers like he's kind of unrecognizable on this one to most of other albums like he's not doing so much of his kind of trademark low vocal he's sitting far more on this kind of like higher almost black metal register um and as as, as it goes like I say it's kind of mid-paced stuff but it's um it's performed very kind of tightly I think a lot of that is held up by um like kind of session drummer Reno Killerich who I mean He's played live for Hate Eternal, so he's a guy who really can do anything. And with this, it's just this and like the, the following album room service, he just puts in his performance that he's like wall-to-wall -wall double kicks. Like it just incredibly overpowering double kicks throughout. There's a few sort of slightly goofy moments, like the there's a song towards the end of the album where they put in the whole of Al Pacino's speech from um The Devil's Advocate, which is Again, it's uh, much like kind of those speeches I mentioned, like being included in that Mudvayne album. It's very 2000s, including that as a sample, like uh, a lot of like kind of um, angry atheist stuff there. Uh, but yeah, like aside from that, like I, I really enjoy this release. It just sounds really nasty. So an album I had completely missed until um, so sort of getting into the research of this is uh, from Mexico's The Chasm, their uh, fourth album, Processing to the Infraworld. So if you're not familiar with The Chasm, it's made up of ex-members of uh, Mexico's Cenotaph, uh, not to be confused with the also very famous uh, Polish Cenotaph, um, and they play this fantastic uh, variant of death metal where they sort of have like a kind of very riffy style that's clearly influenced from the original sort of 90s scene they were part of but mix that with amazing atmospherics like somehow and it's atmospherics that are primarily driven through sort of interesting guitarists it's there they have a very unique playing style that just makes their albums like seem really like 
I don't know, just like transcending. They are truly excellent experiences, most of them. So, processing, uh, procession in, procession to the infra world is, it kind of sits like sort of in the middle of that evolution. Like, I think for me, the, the Alma Vares I've enjoyed the most is their 2009 one, uh, Far Seeing the Paranormal Abysm, which is really fully into the, like, it being just over the top atmospheric experience. But, procession you can see it getting to that point like they are doing some really special stuff with it it's it's already um immensely atmospheric but it it is i, I think it is more obviously kind of rooted in that older sound like starting every off with just really cool riffs um there is like more of a focus on this in flashy lead guitar work which somewhat comes like is removed from the later stuff as they really sort of lean into that like kind of atmospheric sound and i, I think as well something that really helps with that is um like that kind of atmospherics is uh daniel corchado's vocals he has this really kind of amazing soulful scream he has like such a kind of um I don't know there's so much like emotion and kind of clear sort of passion in his delivery. I, I I can't quite put my finger on what makes him so special as a vocalist, but the combination of his guitar work and his vocals on this like really lead it to have an incredibly unique sound. Like there there is there's something that basically only the chasm can do. The only thing that somewhat lets down this album is the the kind of recording is very overpowered by the drums like particularly the cymbals are just like massively high in the mix which is a is a touch off putting but otherwise i mean this is a truly special album like i, I don't think that's enough that should put you off and if you haven't delved into the chasm like um so myself, I only got into them in the last year, thanks to former guest Michael Tote recommending them. Um, yeah, they're definitely essential listening. Like they, they everything I've heard of them so far of their like I think they've got eight albums now. Like the four I'm familiar with, all fantastic and all this wonderfully atmospheric take on death metal. So the final death metal album I want to cover is by a band called Symbiosis, and it's their debut album, Crisis. So Symbiosis are a French band. They put out one EP, actually also in the year 2000. Um, and yeah, they seem to have this short run of doing a huge amount of music, then totally disappearing off the map. So they put out like this, like an EP this album and then in 2005 would put out a two hour long double album that would sort of end their career and they seem like one of those bands that should have kind of got huge but because of not lasting like they symbiosis never really they never reappeared on my radar i don't know if it's something maybe maybe you listeners are more familiar with but they play this amazing brand of progressive uh death metal where it's just all the genres at once there, this album crisis in its runtime goes through moments. Say, the opening track "Decadent Souls" is this real blend of both brutal and tech death with like immensely flashy guitar work, but like a core of like really heavy riffing. But then uh, the bizarrely named track three "Quest of the Dolphin" goes into some real Gothenburg melodic territories with this like beautiful soaring lead guitar passages like and, and then loads of like keyboards over the top of um over the top of these kind of more melodic elements but then 
delving back into technical moments again and back into heavier stuff there's moments of like certainly like sort of black and death metal influence in there it's it's a very wild listen but i i've seen some sort of criticism saying it's a bit too incoherent i don't see it myself i i do think this is quite a i think it's got a good flow to it it's it's it is all over the place it does change quickly but it's it, none of it feels utterly jarring. Um, the, the the only thing that actually for me lets it down is um, the fact is it's primarily well, it's program drums, and it's program drums in two thousand. And whereas say like the Berserker lent into that and made it very clear they were doing something that sat outside pretending to be a real drummer, this doesn't feel like that. This like has that kind of. It's just slightly annoying sounding drums. And also as well, we have that thing of um, there isn't a dedicated bass player in the band and the whole mix is slightly low on bass. Like it's very guitar and vocal focus with that, as I say, that slightly overbearing kind of drum sound. And that that somewhat lets things down a little. But don't let you put that off. This is such an interesting like artifact from the early 2000s. Just this sort of wildly ambitious technical like bizarre unique take on death metal like i'm as i'm amazed like it feels like something that would have been pretty groundbreaking kind of five years later but at, at this stage yeah really really out there um cool stuff they're they're a band i very much tipped as like, i want to listen to everything else they put out i only found this um this this morning so i've only given it like uh, a quick couple of listens through but so far i am i'm very impressed by the kind of the the oddity and uniqueness of uh, symbiosis debut crisis <laughs> So that's kind of all the albums I uh, sort of wanted to cover in any depth. Um, I'm not sure if there's a huge conclusion to be drawn from this. As I, the, the kind of interesting trends I saw on this was that death metal seemed to be making a fantastic showing in the early 2000s, despite kind of what I thought of as a bit of a kind of quieter period for the genre. I think the fact that sort of brutal death metal was keeping the enthusiasm alive and so many of those um, old guard bands were still putting out like if like you know not their best albums still albums that very much uh wouldn't disappoint their listeners really kept the genre moving on whereas so 
Thrash seemingly had totally died a death at this point, unless, I mean, possibly I'm missing some classics from this era, but um, there wasn't any that struck me as particularly obvious. And, and black metal was in an interesting period where I think it was still working out generally what to do next as a genre. There's certainly some great albums from this time period, and sure, a lot I've overlooked that were were kind of less popular. But it, what's particularly interesting is 2000 a year stands up in my mind. It's really, you know, highlighted by those two super popular albums I brought at the time of like, you know, kind of the the kind of more accessible end of rock at this point in time was Link Biscuit and Linkin Park. So I always think of it as like a, a, a kind of a bad time for, for heavier music. But um, actually there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on. It just wasn't quite ready to come back to the mainstream something i didn't really touch on there is two albums that came out this year that um would be very symbolic of where things were about to go so kill such engage put out their self-titled and lamb of god put out new american gospel which are not two of the albums that really like you know broke those bands absolutely huge but metalcore is starting to sort of uh to rear its head and i think being at like how commercially accessible new metal was at this point, it's definitely in this death throes. It had like a year or two more before it would completely drop out of like the commercial kind of mainstream, and that like kind of metalcore would really rise to prominence. As always with this kind of thing, if I've missed out some of your favourites, please please do let me know. Like uh, trying to rush through an entire year's worth of albums in one episode's research it's nearly impossible and it's also why this episode's kind of run very long do stick around i've got one more thing i really want to cover before the end of this episode so i want to get in a quick uh, nepotism corner from a very recent release from the bristol metal scene this is chewing glass collective within the name of progress we must loathe as one uh, so from their band camp uh, chewing glass collective is a anonymous group of um or a collective of Bristol musicians working together to create heavy music from unrelenting extreme metal or crunching industrial beats and the aim to blend it all together. And they do a fantastic job of this. I would put this kind of in the category of grind. Like the, the EP is a total of 12 minutes long and seven tracks, like most clocking in at under two minutes long. And it is just furious unrelenting so i think the the kind of industrial element really comes in in the kind of percussion it's i believe entirely kind of programmed drums for it mixed with this incredibly fast kind of guitar really kind of chunky bass sound um yeah some really cool bass work on this and it's but like those songs like even ones like um abyss like it's 45 seconds long still riffy that's the thing that i think really sells this to me is it there's in those tiny kind of spaces they find space for huge amounts of like changes in pace regular kind of dropping in and out of instruments like lots of bits where you have like one guitar playing for a second then all the kind of drums bass everything comes back in for like an absolutely kind of pounding sort of blasting section really kind of furious grind energy especially when they go for those like sort of faster moments which yeah are kind of the the meat of this album it features like uh, i believe guest vocals by members of bands like body harvest and mortar's head who are some of the kind of I don't know, the real standouts of the modern Bristol scene. What's interesting as well with that like i, I believe there's about four different vocalists on this um 
it never sounds incoherent or like like the fact this is a collective working on it it doesn't sound remotely sort of disparate these songs seem very focused like there is elements to sort of repeat throughout them like a lot of them do this thing where when they get to the more kind of I oh yeah, like the kind of the really nastiest moments they play with like some cool dissonant stuff thrown in there um there is like a couple of interesting departures i really like the final track in the birdhouse uh feels like kind of it's going to be like an epilogue it's like sort of the longest song on the album and the first like minute and a half of it is this very sort of melancholy kind of dark section which you know not featuring any of that kind of hyper blasting from earlier on but then the final minute brings that all back to end on a real like hefty crescendo so if you're into kind of the more kind of hefty end of hardcore or that kind of the more um i guess like sort of nasm influenced uh kind of grind sound with that really kind of massive bass or even sort of some of the more distant death metal scene i think there's there'd be something for you in this album like particularly say like a track like slavery from the middle really reminds me of what some of those like you know death metal bands at the moment who are pushing like the extremity of things forward this sits perfectly with that and for a debut it it sounds sounds amazing like i, I really like the tone of this like uh, those mixtures of different styles have come together in a really great way as i say if you want some really cool inventive grind definitely uh check out chewing glass collective this is this is very impressive like that melding of styles like if you say like later now you listen to a track like grinding dirt which is half and half that kind of like groovy grind sound the start and then really playing around with that kind of like industrial influence and samples like yeah, it's just a really, really amazing album. And obviously, like, it's it's from my local scene, so I'm always going to be overly supportive of it. But seriously, check it out. This is a very special release. And it's only 12 minutes long, so very digestible. If you're into any of those sounds, please give this one a go. I think it's all up on Bandcamp and Spotify for kind of free streaming so yeah please check out chewing glass collective anyway sorry this episode has run on so incredibly long it was very hard to summarize 2000 uh down <laughs> into into a short piece but yeah uh, i want to keep this just under two hours so I'll, I'll finish up here thanks a lot for listening yeah,